We've actually worked through the Psalms this summer in a really strange order. Um, it's just been all over the place. And, and that's because the Psalms are that way. You can just open up and read any Psalm you want. And it's not a particular order you have to go through. And, and that means that here we are looking at our ninth Psalm this summer. And our, our ninth one is actually the first one, uh, the very first one, Psalm 1. And what I found is that the more I've gotten into this text, just really getting into it this week, the more I, I really wish we had begun with this psalm. Um, not because it's a requirement, but uh, it really I just say that because it's this sort of gateway, gateway to the entire Psalter. Uh, you can almost imagine one of those big stone gateways where they carve something above it. Uh, and in this case, it's this encouragement that we delight in the law uh, of the Lord. We meditate on it day and, and night. And then maybe next to it, you know, carve the, the image of a, a big tree planted next to a stream with fruit on it or, or something like that. But you can almost picture this as this, this gateway into the entire uh, book of Psalms. Uh, and so you can probably see why I wish we had begun there and, and then as we enter into the book of Psalms. And yet, in God's providence, here we are today. Uh, here the last weekend in the, in the month of July. And so grab your Bible. Open up to the book of Psalms. I've been telling you all this time. You just open your Bible right to the middle, and that puts you in Psalms, the first one. That should be pretty easy. And uh, follow along as I read God's word for us today. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the way of seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And we ask that you would illuminate our minds so that we might understand it and believe it. May that illumination and true understanding then work its way into our emotions so that they are built upon a solid foundation of truth. We thank you. We thank you for this well-known psalm that encourages us to be active in the avoidance of wickedness through our pursuit of, of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's just jump right in. Psalm 1 is, is beautiful, but it's also full of deep substance. And, and it's one of the reasons I just absolutely love this psalm. And at the, the most basic level, though, it's an argument. An argument meant to convince us of something, and what it's trying to convince us of is that the path that we walk in life actually matters. And so it presents these two paths, almost like a fork in the road. And, and this method of argument, though, the, the two-path idea has been used often. In fact, Jesus himself uses this argument in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks about two trees, one that is healthy and bears fruit, and one that is diseased and after producing no fruit is ultimately cut down. Uh, just before that even, in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus speaks about two gates. 
each gate leading to a different destination. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and the, those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I think here in our text then, the psalmist lays out these two paths, and he wants us to understand they are of great significance. Because the person walking in the first path is called blessed. Uh, later on in verse 6, this same person is called righteous. And the person walking in the second path is called wicked. And we are told that this man, this woman, will perish. You might have noticed there is no third path. There's no third category, no middle ground at all. And so what the psalmist is making clear is that every one of us belongs to the category of the righteous or the wicked. And so as we look closer at these six verses, I'm going to ask you to do uh, a little self-evaluation. It's just asking these simple questions. Does your life line up more with the person, with the, the, uh, the person that the psalmist describes as wicked or more with the person that the psalmist describes as righteous? Uh, so it's fresh in your mind. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Uh, actually, just one I'll read again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It might sound familiar. It's because this is very, very similar to the Beatitudes where uh, when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, there Jesus speaks of happiness, uh, blessedness. You know, blessed are those whose, whose lives match these characteristics which follow. And he begins with the poor in spirit. You know, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and it goes on and on. Uh, it's the same idea here. The description of the blessed person in Psalm 1 is first described from this negative perspective then. Uh, if you look at it, it says particularly about those who he's in close fellowship with. And it's understood that this is an actual progression. First he's walking, and then he's standing, and eventually he's sitting. It's an actual progression. And, uh, you know, it's hard to really think in these terms. Let me try to explain it to you this way. You might think of it like, like horse manure. Let me explain it. Um, walking through horse manure, that's gross, but you're just passing through. Maybe you're not exactly committed to doing this, and you keep going. Uh, standing in horse manure, that's grosser. I mean, you have some idea you're standing in this stuff, and, and, and yet not enough that you keep moving. You're just standing there. And then you get to the point of sitting in manure, just settling into it. You're comfortable at this point. Uh, it's not even gross to you anymore. Everyone else might think it's gross, but you're just settling into this manure, and it's great. Um, that's the way we're seeing wickedness works. At first, you're passing through, and eventually you're so numb to it, you don't even notice it. Each progression, then, in our psalm, it also defines the companions with the distinct terms here. Uh, first, it says the wicked. Um, that's those who do not regard God. Uh, then it says sinners. Yes, every single one of us are sinners in here. Uh, but this is someone who practices willfully disobeying God, sin that lacks repentance of any sort. And, and then finally we see those who are called scoffers. Proverbs 21 even gives a, a short definition of a scoffer. It says, um, Proverbs 21, 24 says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. And the context that we see here, it's... Um, it's the person who not only doesn't believe in God, 
but arrogantly mocks anyone else who does. Who mocks the idea of a, a biblical ethic, and really anyone who chooses to follow that ethic. Um, the encouragement then in our, our text here is to not fellowship with those who encourage you to act wickedly. Now understand, that doesn't mean that we don't interact with the wicked. Um, a close association versus interacting with them. You remember, Jesus ate with many notorious sinners. In fact, if we are to take the light of the gospel in the dark places, it is absolutely going to require that we engage with those who may hate God. Those who may hate you for hating God. That's the way it's going to work. Um, also, if you think back, many of us in our own lives were brought to believe the gospel when Christians got out of their bubbles and walked into your life wherever you were. So what we need to see here is that there is a blessed joy then to be had when, when in God, when we avoid being under the influence or in close association with those who are actively wickedly and more importantly who are seeking you to be actively wickedly, wicked. Um, and I think you'll find here there is a, a contrast in this text that's very interesting. In the, the first half of this, we see this, this statement that says, um, not to it gives us an idea of who we're not to associate with. And it, it sets it up that you almost expect that the other half's going to tell you these are the persons you should associate with. Um, something like righteous people or godly men and women is what you almost expect to come. But it's not what you see in verse 2, is it? Look at it. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In a sense, it's setting up this question of, who do you listen to? Do you listen to the advice of scoffers? Or are we going to listen to the word of God as it's been revealed in Scripture? And see, all over Scripture, this love for the word of God is associated with joyful Christians. Uh, Psalm 119, 103. It's a really big chapter. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I think sometimes we gloss over that because for us, honey is just one of a hundred of different sweeteners we might choose from. But at the time that they actually wrote this, that was one of the few things that would have been taste, uh, tasted sweet to your mouth. Um, one of the few things that they ate that was like that. It's, it's almost like we might say, uh, my soul loves the experience of your word like my taste buds love the experience of ice cream. Something that just gets you excited about it. He's trying to express that's the way that he views the word of God. I want you to notice also in our text that it's not saying the one who respects the law of God. It's an important distinction because we can actually begrudgingly submit ourselves under God's law, not perfectly, not in any great way, but we can begrudgingly try to and yet not love God's word. That's why this raises a very different question. It's the question of, do you delight in the law of the Lord? Psalm 112.1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119.47 also says, For I find my delight in your commandments which I love. Are you seeing this one major significant difference between uh, the wicked and the righteous in this text? It's, it's what each one actually finds delight in. That's a big deal. Um, John Piper puts this well. He says, Never reduce Christianity to a matter of demands and resolutions and willpower. 
It's a matter of what we love, what we delight in, what tastes good to us. So as we continue to work through this, I want us to continue to evaluate our own hearts. We should be asking ourselves, do I delight in the Word of God? And I don't like that question. I don't think we can always answer yes. I mean, it gives us an idea here, though. It says one of the ways that we can do that, um, we see in this last verse or the last section of verse 2, and and we ask, is, is this true of us? Do, do we also meditate on God's word day and night? See, after Moses died, Joshua took his place of leadership. And God actually speaks to him. And God says to him in Joshua 1.8, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If you're familiar with Psalm 119, that's, that's one I'd like to do at some point, but it's so long, it would probably take many weeks. Um, it has a lot to say about the power of God's Word in our life, uh, in the life of His children. And, and in verse 97 of Psalm 119, the psalmist, psalmist adds this, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So then in verses 3 and 4 of our text, the the author paints these two pictures. And I I love it because it's this beautiful word picture that if you just close your eyes, you can almost imagine these things. Um, This picture that goes with these two paths. uh, Remember the two paths, that of the righteous and that of the wicked. So I want you to follow along as I read these again. It says, he is like a tree. That's the the righteous one, uh, the blessed man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. See, each of these verses is a a simile. I dabble in English. I don't know it real well. Um, You know that by now. But a simile is this figure of speech that directly compares two things. And if you remember this from English, what are the words that it uses? Like and as. You do remember. Your English teachers will be proud of you. Um, so the thing with similes is that there are good similes and there are really bad similes. And, and I actually took the time to find a, a bad simile for you so you can understand this. Uh, you may or may not remember a band called Live. That was their actual name in the 90s. They should probably be on your playlist. Um, they had this song written called All Over You. And, and, and it was this love song. And included in that song is one of the worst lyrics in all of history. It says, our love is like water pinned down and abused for being strange. This is a terrible simile because it's completely illogical. First of all, you cannot pin down water. What does that even mean? Have you even thought about pinning down water? You can't pin down water. The other thing is that water is not strange. There's nothing strange about it. It covers over 70% of the planet we live on, which means it's probably the most normal thing in existence. Finally, no one abuses water. That's not even a thing. You, it's not a thing. And so when Live sings these lyrics, our love is like water penned down and abused for being strange, I have no idea what they're trying to say. It's like trying to make sense out of an episode of Yo Gabba Gabba or something like that. There's no meaning there to be had. And, and I point this out to you because I want you to understand that the two similes in Psalm 1 are awesome. 
I mean, they're beautifully put together, and, and they make so much sense to, to us once we get through them. And, and so the text itself actually starts with a, with, with a positive one, the tree, but um, I prefer we actually build up. And so I'm actually going to reverse the order of that and first kind of look at verse 4 where it tells us that the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. How many of you know that word chaff? Do you have some idea of it? Okay, some of you farming, you should have some idea of this. Um, I want to explain it to you. I don't want to assume you know it, and, and that's because I assumed I knew it and I was completely wrong. I pictured basically the husk of corn thrown on the ground. And while that might be true on some level, that has no idea what they're talking about here. Um, the process of this, that you know, when we read this word, chaff then what the author wants us to picture is what it looks like in Israel and 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 so when grains like wheat and barley and other things of that nature are 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 grown they have this hard outer shell um, called a husk and if I'm getting this wrong just yell at me and tell me I'm getting wrong any of you that know Um, but we don't eat that part you can't just chew on it it's not going to work the way you want it to work it's not how you make flour and and so that shell has to be removed some way and and the process to do that back then was um was to find a place where the wind blows and so kansas you'd probably have a whole lot of those Um, but they'd look for a hill up high where the wind was going to blow and and then they'd they'd find a or make a flat surface and something real hard packed down and they would come and they'd pour all the grains there and, and then they would bring oxen or cattle or some sort of heavy something that is going to smash this. And they call this the threshing floor because it was just crushed down so that that shell was broken off of it. And so now you have this mixture of the husk and the, and the, and the good stuff together. And the way that they began to separate that um, was <clears throat> um, they'd find a, what's called a winnowing fork and they would take it all and throw it up in the air. Well, the good part was heavier, so it falls right back down to the ground. And the chaff was the worthless part, and it's so light and had no weight to it, it would just blow away. And they would do this over and over again until what you had on the ground was all the good stuff, and the chaff was just blown away. Um, And and so what this is trying to explain to us is that the, the wicked... Uh, the scoffers are that part that's not kept. They're, they're compared to something that is absolutely worthless. And in fact, the only reason it's ever gathered up is just to burn it so that it's gone. That's a terrifying image. And they're actual people being compared to this. And it's a, intentionally a terrifying image. We're going to come back to that. The, the other simile then in, in verse 3 I love this. It's, it's beautiful. Um, it, it's, it's of the blessed one who delights in God's law. And this person is compared to a tree that has been planted right next to a stream. You see, the, the word of God in this is, is the stream, the law of the Lord. And, and the tree is the one who, who follows God. Someone who is, um, we would use the term Christian. And when a tree in nature is next to a stream, one of the wonderful things about that is that in that stream is the water that it needs to grow and and to become strong. And so even if no rain comes, because of that stream, it has the water that it needs. And and the idea here then is that meditating on on God's word, um, that is reading it, that is thinking it over in your head, thinking about what it means, thinking about how you apply it to your life, just soaking it up like the tree would the water from the stream. See, if we want to see our our faith grow strong so that we can have endurance, so that we can stand firm when when we face adversity in our life of all sorts, um, we need to be soaking up and meditating on the Word of God. That's that's what we're trying to see here. 
That's the point of, of Jeremiah 17h, which, which says that the one who trusts the Lord is also like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And it does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit, because it's connected to the water that it needs in that stream. And our text today also says that this tree planted by the water is going to produce fruit. It's one of the ways we know that a tree is, is healthy. When it has that much nourishment that it can produce fruit. Tim Keller in his book on prayer actually writes, um, makes reference to this. And he writes on the significance of this saying, he says, Chaff cannot produce anything. Well, the tree can produce fruit. The reason for the difference is that the tree is a growing thing and the chaff is not. Persons who meditate become people of substance, who have thought things out and have deep convictions, who can explain difficult concepts in simple language, and who have good reasons behind everything they do. Many people do not meditate. They skim everything, picking and choosing on impulse, having no thought-out reasons for their behavior, following whims. They live shallow lives. Begin to see these word pictures and just the difference that one leads to life and the other one leads to death. Um, these two word or these two paths then are represented by these, these two word pictures. You can just picture that chaff just blowing away in the wind. And the last two verses of the psalm speak about the destination of the two paths. Uh, verses five and six say, "Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, the destination of the righteous is known by God. He protects them. He approves of their way. While the wicked path ends in destruction. And I think that's hard to hear. And I think when you first read this, if you're anything like me, one of the things you hear is that, boy, that sounds contrary to the doctrine of justification um, by faith alone. You know, you begin to think, we know from Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. And yet here we're reading that the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will perish. One of the things we need to know to really understand this properly is that um, righteousness does not always mean sinless perfection. It does mean that at times, but it doesn't always mean that. Uh, Psalm 32, when John was preaching on two weeks ago, uh, we learn about King David's sinning. We learn about uh, his repentance. We learn about his receiving forgiveness and all that that entailed. Uh, near the end of Psalm 32, we saw that there are people who were actually called godly. Um, they were also said to trust in the Lord. They were even in that text called righteous, not because they're perfect, but because they truly repent of their sins. And that is a significant thing. You see, in David's case, looking forward to the Savior, and in our case, we're looking backwards to the very same Savior of Jesus Christ. And so here when we read righteous, I don't want you to think perfect here. I want you to think delighting in God's Word. I want you to think um, desiring to obey. I want you to think repenting when failing, no matter how miserable the failure. I want you to think of those who trust in Christ, those who rest in Christ. Luke 317 paints a very similar picture to Psalm 1. There, John the Baptist is speaking, and he's speaking about what Jesus is going to do. Um, he says his winnowing fork, that's the very fork that we use to toss up the, the chaff and the, the good grain. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We don't like to read things like that. What he's telling us is those who trust in Jesus and so delight in his word will be saved. Not so for those who trust in themselves. See, this whole text can be very difficult to understand at times. What we have here in Psalm 1 is is an author who's really trying to paint this picture of, of two paths in life. The righteous or the wicked. And we learn that what we learn in the gospel is that we are naturally wicked. We understand that. We also learn that in Christ we are counted righteous. Not that you actually are righteous. You are counted righteous. And yet the two paths of Psalm 1 continue to be true for us today. See, the one whose faith is in Christ delights in his word. And the one who delights in wickedness does not have faith in Christ. And so it, it points to Christ as righteousness for us. And here's the thing. If we're not careful, we can quickly preach antinomianism. I know that's a big word. It literally means uh, against law. It's a theological term. Um, it's, a, it's a doctrine that teaches that someone can just confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but in their life carry on not just committing sin, because every single one of us commits sin. So not just committing sin, but pursuing sin, delighting in sin, not repenting in sin. And so the result then of, of believing and practicing this doctrine of um, antinomianism is that they don't delight in the law of God and they don't even see why it matters. I say that because I want you to avoid the, the air that, that says Psalm 1 no longer matters. And it's no longer relevant for the Christian. See, it is relevant because delighting in the word of God is a, a fruit of true faith. It's not something you do, but something that God does in you when he fills us with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So now I've, I've suggested as we work through this that we do some self-evaluation, right? I hope you've been doing that. We've, we've been asking ourselves, do I walk in the counsel of the wicked or do I sit in the seat of scoffers? Do I delight in the law of the Lord? Do I meditate on God's word? And I think... The question that, that many of us face here then is, at least from time to time, if we're honest, is that what do I do if I don't delight in the law of the Lord? What if I'm bored with Scripture? What if I want to love the words in my Bible? What if I really want to? But I just don't. I want to suggest three things. And there, there might be more, but let me suggest three things. First, thinking on Psalm 1, if you find yourself under the influence of wickedness, remove yourself immediately. And that might mean cutting off friendship. It might even mean changing jobs or deleting an online account of some sort. You know, you might just pray to God and ask Him to reveal that if that's true in your life, and if so... You know, you go back to this and just do a 180 from what we read in Psalm 1. If you're sitting in the seat of scoffers, well, stand up and walk away. And I, I say this, if you need help thinking through this, by all means, I'd love to sit down and help you think through this. Second thing is pray for God to give you delight in his word. And I say that because you cannot conjure this up. You absolutely can't. I hate artichoke. 
I think it is the worst thing ever growing. If God ever made any mistake in creation, it's making artichoke. Um, and he didn't. But I can't conjure up liking it tomorrow. I can't just will myself that I'm going to like artichoke. I've just decided it. It doesn't work that way. You see, something in my taste buds or something in the neurological transmitting of taste to pleasure has to change within me, and, and I can't just will that. So we pray earnestly to God to give you new taste buds that delight in his words. And the third thing is, is keep tasting. Keep tasting the word of God. It's a, a concept that I think of in terms of uh, avocado, like the green fruit slash vegetable. What is it? Fruit, vegetable? None of you know. So the green thing. Um, when I was a child growing up in Texas, avocados showed up all the time. Uh, they were always in our house. My mom loved avocados. My brother loved avocados. And, and I just didn't. Uh, I tasted it. I'd had small bites of it here and there. And uh, I didn't hate it. I just didn't care for it. I wasn't interested. I thought I didn't really like avocado. And so by the time I was in college, I thought avocado was just uh, a food I didn't like. I didn't ever try it. And that's the truth. I just had not tried it in years and years. And then after avocado, I can't remember the exact situation, but I did try avocado again. And this time it was absolutely wonderful to me. I loved it. I, I wanted it on my food. I wanted to dip my chips and everything in it. Um, just loved it. And you see what has happened is my taste buds matured or changed over time and I'd begun to genuinely love it. Uh, Laura, still with our kids, every time we, we have food that aren't generally kid foods, she makes them try a bite of it and honestly I thought it was a little weird at first. Um, they don't like it. It seemed strange to me, and yet, by having them keep trying it, one of the things we found is that often something they've not liked over and over and over again, by about the tenth time, they're like, I really like this now, and they're excited because there's a new food that they enjoy. All that to say, don't, don't just pray, God, give me taste buds, and sit back to wonder when it's going to change. Pray that. Pray for God to give you a delight in his word, but then read it, be in it, meditate on it, try it. Um, you know, pray for God to give you and then be involved in it. So those three things I've said are uh, remove yourself from wicked associations that are influencing you to do wickedness. Uh, pray for God to change your spiritual taste buds and to be in God's word regularly. Keep tasting. And I want to add just one more thing. Um, I know I mentioned it before. Laura and I do a, a spinning class. It's maybe the craziest thing we do. Um, we're not very crazy. Um, but last Thursday, halfway through our class, our, our cycling instructor, this woman, Amy, who was just awesome, uh, was shouting out something about how cycling just is one of the best things to make fat melt off your body. That's a great picture, isn't it? Um, and, and just joking, about 10 minutes later, I was asking her, am I skinny yet? And, you know, I'm telling her, I've been riding for 40 minutes. I must be skinny by now. And, and she just responded. She didn't quite get the joke, so she gave me a real response. Um, she tells me fitness is not a one-time thing. It is a lifelong journey. She's right. Uh, see, her point was good fitness is this slow, ongoing process. That's the one aspect, or one of the aspects that I just love about this tree analogy because it is slow growth. See, in Israel, the most common fruit-bearing tree, anyone even know this? It's the olive tree. Yeah, uh, the olive tree. You know that it takes five years before the tree bears its very first fruit? 
very first olive. And then for the next few years, as it continues to mature, there's more and more fruit on it. And, and yet, here I am living in an American culture where we want things so quickly that when I find myself at a fast food restaurant and it's been like five minutes, I'm mad at them. Like, you've sinned against me miserably. I've been waiting for food for five minutes. Do you have any idea how hungry I am? I just become incredibly frustrated. And so I, I, I think that the temptation that you and I and all of us are going to face with a, a sermon like this and a text like this is to get up tomorrow with this great motivation that I'm going to delight in the Lord, uh, in the word of the Lord, and I'm going to meditate on it. And we do that. And then by Monday afternoon, we're thinking, you know, I don't feel closer to God. And I don't feel any stronger in my faith. And, and come to this point, well, you know, it, it didn't work. Because I don't feel any different. I think that's the temptation we're going to face. And so I, I need you to remember I need you to remind me that, that growth and grace is not a one-time thing. It is a lifelong journey. It, it takes time. And our, our text says that blessed is the person who meditates day and night. That's not an event. It's a lifestyle of putting our roots in the Word and soaking it up for nourishment, for growth. And that's my prayer for us as a church. That's my prayer for, for you and I, no matter where we are in life. And I, and I say that because it doesn't matter, if you're going to think of the tree analogy, it doesn't matter to me one bit whether you're a little bitty tree or a real big tree right now. See, what's important is that you're planted in the Word, soaking up that nourishment so that you will grow stronger, that you will grow more mature with each day that comes. That's, that's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Lord, grow in our soul's taste buds, which will find delight in your word. So that we will desire to not merely check off having read our Bibles on some list somewhere, but that we might slow down in our reading, slow down in our lives. And we might meditate on your word to read it and think about it and let it roll around in our heads and compare it to other scripture pray through it and let it lead us into praying for others that, that we might meditate deeply in your word, that we might think on what you have said and, and what that means for the world around us. Oh, God, give us patience to grow slowly. Teach, give us patience so that we might grow strong like a tree, so that our lives can be fruitful and so that our lives can withstand the wind and the storms of life that will come. God, I pray this for the people in this room, for this church, for our lives. We pray this in the name of the Holy One, who is Jesus. Amen.